This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splan. Thank you for listening. Today, my guest is Lori Bennett-Cook. Lori has her doctorate in human sexuality. She is the chapter lead for Sex Positive Utah, sits on the advisory board for Sex Positive World, and is an IPSA trained surrogate partner. She currently works in the state of Utah as a sexuality educator at the Center for Positive Sexuality. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So for our listeners out there today, we're going to kind of break down like what is a clinical sexologist? What's the difference between a clinical sexologist and a PhD sex psychologist? We're going to talk about different interventions that Laurie uses. Um, We're going to talk about different interventions with heterosexual partners, as well as the trans community. And then we're going to talk about multidisciplinary approach and how this um, coincides with pelvic floor physical therapists. So to start off, Laurie, will you describe to our listeners, like, what is a clinical sexologist? Thank you. Yes, a clinical sexologist is someone who studies sexuality, sex, and all its forms, how, what people are doing sexually, and how they feel about it. Um, It's not so much exploring Um, any type of pathologies in sexuality, but more about helping people become comfortable with their sexuality, whatever that looks like. Awesome. And talk a little bit about your training to become a clinical sexologist. A lot of school. (laughs) So my undergrad is in psychology. And after that, I was considering going for licensure to become just a, um, I shouldn't say just, it's a big job. Um, an MFT or a licensed clinic social worker, but I really wanted to focus on sexuality. And at the time, there really weren't many programs for that. So, and interestingly, when one studies to go to school to become a marriage and family therapist, there isn't a lot of talk about sex in the relationships. And I find it such a paramount thing to discuss. Um, It's how we all got here. We're all the result of that. So, So I went on to school and and found a grad school in San Francisco that is no longer in place anymore. It has since since gone, since the owners of the school have passed, uh, the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. I like them because they had um, not just some research, but they had a lot of hands-on approach. And that was important to me too, to get some education and hands-on work. From my clinical sexology, I went on to train as a surrogate partner therapist through IPSA. The International Professional Sexological Association, um, Surrogates Association, excuse me, and surrogate partner therapy is where we work with somebody in a triadic model, and with those clients, uh, it's touch therapy, which is very important because sometimes you can only get so far with a patient just talking, especially because sex is tactile and something we learn by doing, and it can be very frightening to go learn sex with somebody that you're hoping to have as a partner and you're still kind of fumbling around trying to figure out for yourself what that even looks like and feels like for yourself. Okay. Yeah. So what would you say is the difference between a PhD sex psychologist and a sexologist? So the listeners out there know like who might be a better choice Mm -hmm. for me when trying to identify those sex 
questions and and different um, issues that they might be having you know the the education is is very intense for both um, but a sex psychologist somebody with a PhD in psychotherapy would probably be better equipped to work with somebody that is dealing with past concerns if you have things that are concerning you traumas in your past um, things that are maybe still haunting you and preventing you from going forward. Uh, with a sexologist, with myself, I'm better equipped to work with the clients I see helping them go forward. Like, where are you at now and where do you want to be? Um, not quite like a coach, but leaning more towards that than intense therapy. Okay. So let's maybe talk about some of the different conditions that I see in my clinic um, and how you help with treatment with those patients. Mm -hmm. um, so let's maybe talk about patients that have vaginismus. So vaginismus being the inability to tolerate penetration of any sort, whether it's mm -hmm. um, digital or with the tampon even, or with their partner. Talk to me a little bit about your approach and how your therapy goes with those individuals. Usually with those individuals, if it is, if talk therapy isn't enough, um, I usually get referred those individuals by their traditional therapist because it's most of the time vaginismus is a psychological barrier that's in the way. It's usually not a physical barrier. Um, it's usually not the anatomy itself. So being able to work with the patient and helping them become more comfortable with that part of their anatomy for whatever reason, whether it's past traumas, past fears, um, even if it was just a one-time situation, something can frighten somebody so much that the body literally reacts and will not open up for anything. And it can be quite painful, uh, both emotionally and physically, because most people do want to be somewhat physical with a partner if they have someone. Um, so working with that patient very, very, very slowly and getting them back in tune with their body and what that feels like. And what that means is that we sit together one-on-one -on -one as their partner, helping them um, become comfortable within their skin and doing some touching exercises with one another. Um, we don't start off with anything sexual because that can be just frightening because many times somebody with vaginismus will spill over into other areas and they have a hard time with touch in general in other areas of their body as well. Um, vaginismus is usually a symptom of something else, not just a problem in itself. So getting used to just accepting and receiving touch and being able to exercise their boundaries. We talk about boundaries. Um, if we're going to start off with touch of just, let's say, touching one another's arms one day, then we know that we're just going to touch each other from fingertips to shoulder for a period of five minutes. It's just going to stay within that. It's not going to, you know, go outside those bounds. And many times as the exercises get more inclusive of other body parts and for longer durations, people recognize that they have a say and they get to um, share what feels good, what doesn't feel good. They know that it doesn't go outside of those boundaries and that feeling of safety alone can help the rest of their body respond better. Um, it takes some time for most people because it's quite frightening. Um, anything dealing with your genitalia is extremely vulnerable. So the most important thing is creating that environment that's super, super safe. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I've had patients with the vaginismus from whether it was a painful biopsy with mm -hmm. a pap smear all the way to a sexual trauma. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, for the listeners out there, traumatic experience doesn't have to be one that's associated with your stereotypical um, PTSD type occurrences. It can be as simple as a uh, well women's exam or being catheterized as a child because of chronic UTIs. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty interesting to see the way the body manifests those different triggers musculoskeletally. Absolutely. I had a patient that she was highly sexually active and very comfortable with her body. She had developed a cyst on her labia that um, had to be removed via a scalpel on her labia. And it was so traumatic that from there she went to just like, I'm not shaving there anymore. I don't want any sex. I mean, it was just anything associated with that part of her body was very, very scary. And it took a little while for her to recognize that was a logically you recognize that, okay, that was an isolated thing. That was a freak thing. It can happen to anybody in grown hair, whatever. But emotionally and physically, it's so traumatic having somebody take a scalpel to that part of your body that her, that whole part of her body was just like, nobody's touching there ever again. So it takes, takes some breaking through that. Definitely. Definitely. Okay, let's maybe transfer over to some conditions with our trans population. Mm -hmm. um, so let's maybe just talk about dysphoria for a minute and how you work with those individuals maybe that aren't going to do um, any surgeries. Like how do you approach those topics and break through those different barriers with those individuals that do want to be more sexually active with their partners but have this gender dysphoria still going on? Mm -hmm. And that varies so greatly. Um, there are some patients that don't want to have any sexual, any, any sexual experience with their genitals whatsoever because the dysphoria is so strong. They just want nothing to do with that part of their body. Um, others that find that it's not the genitalia that, that, um, I, that matches me, um, but it still brings me pleasure. So how can we work around that? So we work on ways of renaming that, finding ways, uh, say it's a transgender female, still she still may have a penis, but finding ways to help her still feel feminine with that, um, to still find that her um, penis, even when erect, how uh, it's really just a large clitoris because we all have the same anatomy, except some is in and some is out, uh, to appreciate the fact that her body has pleasure and offers her pleasure. Um, and then as people transition, even though it can be, if they choose to transition uh, surgically on the bottom, it can be exciting because you can look in the mirror and say like, yes, that's, that's who I am. I'm finally myself. And at the same time, while that's genitalia that you haven't had for so much of your life, it's very unfamiliar. Um, trans females, I work with them as a surrogate. It's very sisterly and very sweet in helping them, you know, take a mirror and take a look at yourself because most of us women, whether we're trans, cis, doesn't matter, for whatever reason, are afraid to take a look at our genitals. So taking somebody to, you know, take a peek, this is what's down here, this is how it works, this is uh, what all the different parts mean. Um, and same with a with um, somebody with a phaleoplasty, 
because while they can look down and see it's still having that across and and understanding how it functions because it hasn't been a part of their anatomy for their entire life so it can be quite exciting taking the scary away awesome yeah i have a patient right now post-vaginal plasty um that wants to get back to feeling that excitement and that euphoria at what point during um post-op do you notice with your patients that they're able to finally achieve clitoral orgasm that really varies and it, it varies because our anatomies are also different some people have a lot of numbness for quite some time <clears throat> and a lot of times that can be quite frightening because they're thinking I'm I had the surgery it's the one I always wanted now I have no feeling whatsoever um, surgery in of itself is quite traumatic so giving your body time to heal it could take a few weeks for some people I've seen it as quickly as six to eight weeks that people can start to have some decent feeling and some people over a year um, but not to get too discouraged and to give your body time to heal and maybe not be in such a hurry to masturbate aggressively to have that feeling but some caresses and some appreciation for how wondrous your body is that you can't even transform it so when would be a good time for these individuals to come to you if they feel like they're getting frustrated with the inability to reach that climax? As soon as they're feeling frustrated. Okay. Because what happens is if you, if you, it goes on too long, then you just get more and more frustrated. And then it, it's almost like your brain trains to this thing that just like, well, why even bother? Because every time I do it, and then it, it's kind of like you're just self-imposing problems that way because it's so expected now that it's just not going to work. So before it gets too bad, like, let's talk. It's not to say it can't be helped if it hasn't been that way for a while, but as soon as it starts to become problematic, and then hopefully we don't have to see each other for as long. Definitely. I tell that to all my patients. You know, the earlier you get in, the better it is mm -hmm. for the outcomes because you don't want the brain to then continue to associate pain mm -hmm. or discomfort or the inability to reach that sensation that you've been longing for and craving ever since you realize that this surgery was an option for you. Exactly. Exactly. Now, how does your treatment approach differ for our trans men? Trans men are interesting because they, there's, I don't know if it's just male energy in general, but they don't always like to ask for help. And there's this whole thing about how, well, I should be able to just manage it myself. And I had my surgery and everything's done. And, and being able, it's beautiful because behind closed doors, <clears throat> people can become more vulnerable and enjoy themselves a little bit better and realize how normal it is that we all, regardless of transverses we're all having issues with our sexuality at some point in our lifetime um i find that working with trans men it's maybe a little more delicate than working with trans, men, trans women just because of that i don't know that preconceived notion of just like well i'm a man now i should be able to handle it you know, not always the case so let yourself be vulnerable and the help that you want and need good um, okay, so now working towards, you know, multidisciplinary approach. Talk to me about 
um, how you incorporate this in your practice? Like, how are you commonly getting your referrals? And then when or how are you referring out and to like what practitioners and at what point? It really depends on the client themselves. Probably 80% of my practice is all referral. Um, because if they're, if somebody is seeing their regular traditional MFT and they want to focus on sexuality, then I, I start seeing those clients, whether it's sexuality between them and a partner, sexuality for their transition, sexuality and aging, whatever that is. If it's a focus on sexuality, they usually get referred to me for that. Um, I'll have patients that come, when they come to me, if they want to have, talk about their sexuality and things aren't functioning the way they want it to, um, get a, a health checkup, make sure that there isn't something underlying going on. What medications are they on? Many times medications can cause a different libido and people aren't aware of that. Or there can be um, some physical ailment going on and the lack of libido or the inability to have an erection is just a symptom of something bigger that's happening. So we want to get a checkup and just make sure that there's nothing else going on that should be addressed. Um, and then talk about also like what's really going on in somebody's life. Because again, many times these are symptoms of something else that's happening. So much of what we experience actually has an emotional and psychological component. It isn't just physical, you know. Um, so yeah, and when, when, I think we all do better when we all work together and all have the different disciplinaries. Um, it's not just a one-stop shop. It's not like, oh, just come see me and I'll fix your erection, just go out and have a great time in the world. There's, there's almost always something else going on. And the sooner we can get to the bottom of whatever that is, the better off somebody is to enjoy their life in general. At what point um, do you feel like referral to pelvic floor physical therapy is indicated? Wow, that's really important. <laughs> At any point that there's pain involved, that there has been um, a history of any kind of pelvic trauma or angst around that area, absolutely. And again, that isn't just from sexuality. And people tend to think that anything that has to do with pelvic areas just for sexuality, and it's not. Okay, that's good. Um, are there specific red flags that pelvic floor physical therapists should be in tune to when they're taking a subjective exam or, you know, going through different treatments that now is a time that we should be referring out? You know, I have come with uh, twice, it's, it's only been twice in, in the many years I've been doing this, where I have actually come with a client to their pelvic floor um, treatment with them. And I think that sometimes just clinicians in general, we can, you know, this is our daily life and, you know, you're treating patients all day. Um, but for that person sitting in your chair, like, this isn't something they do every day. And remembering that being examined and being treated and having implements and everything, anything around your genital area can be very invasive. It can make you feel very vulnerable. It can be quite scary. Um, and I think it's important to remember that this isn't just another day on the job for that person in the chair, but to get back to patient care and be sensitive to what somebody really may be feeling and experiencing. 
when you treat um, women that are unable to achieve orgasm, do you find that it's a technique difficulty, a relaxation difficulty, or something going on more musculoskeletally that's impacting, say, the blood flow to the muscle and to the clitoris itself? Um, I've found two separate things. Um, some women are just more sensitive than other women. And those that are usually able to achieve orgasm really easily are usually sensitive in their entire body. And not just by touch, but maybe they're more sensitive to the way things smell. They're more sensitive to the just everything. They're just highly sensitive. Um, and what seems to be the thing that blocks most people is usually the inability to get out of their head. So if you can, we work with different meditative techniques, different relaxation techniques, um, ways to get back in tune with your body, a lot of sensate focus, a lot of touching in other areas of the body to just get used to what touch feels like. Focusing on not just like during masturbation, not just what the clitoris or vaginal area or vulva might feel like being touched, but what your hand feels like while it's touching that area. Um, and every time you feel it drifting, come back to that space. And then also work with them about starting with like just five minutes. We're just going to touch for five minutes. Now start to six minutes and just kind of increasing that. Because for some people, it's just really hard to get out of their head for very long at all without it wandering someplace else. Okay. And then what about those patients that have religious beliefs where masturbation or um, unconsummated marriage are a barrier? Like, talk to me a little bit about your exposure to those different, like, populations and how mm -hmm. you work around that. Because I know... I kind of, where I live in, in Utah, I run into that sometimes, and it's an interesting tiptoe around to try and teach women to investigate their bodies, but not going against those different beliefs. Right. Um, what I've done with, with clientele like that is I encourage, and I mean, it's, it can be very patriarchal because a lot of that in the religion is the sex is designed to be a better lover for your husband, to please your husband, etc. cetera. Um, but in, if in that regard, encouraging women that the more you know your body and the more you know what brings you pleasure, the more pleasure you'll be able to bring with your partner and the better you'll be able to help him to you and when he satisfies you well that makes him feel better so if you can phrase it in such a way that it's beneficial to that relationship then they usually accept that better um, hopefully in the process they also find some pleasure and not too much shame around around that uh, you know where we're at in Salt Lake City it, it can be be a little scary for people to explore themselves because there are some there are some people that are under the belief that masturbation is a form of adultery so you have to kind of be really careful and respectful of that regardless of what my personal beliefs may be around I'm there to serve the client and you can meet them where they are at and work within the realm that works for their relationship and if it is to just build intimacy in only a way that will serve them together sexually then we have to it. Okay. 
that's a good way of phrasing it for sure. Um, do you help women try and learn how to use um, tampons or menstrual cups? And talk to me about um, how you discuss those with patients for listeners out there that might not have access to an individual that could help them through that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I have, and it's, it's, can, it's another one that can be a little bit scary for some clients because the very idea of inserting something inside themselves can feel a little violating, even though it's just for their health, um, especially if it's a highly religious background. Uh, for those that are really, really fearful and uncomfortable with it, then I, I won't approach it more dramatically anything. Um, for those that really want to, uh, we just, we practice. We practice not side by side and showing them, but, you know, talking everything. And I've had clients that are like, I'm going to practice right now. So they'll go into my bathroom and they'll practice. Can you still feel the tampon up in there? What does that feel like? How does that work? Um, We'll watch videos, we'll use bottles, we'll, you know, whatever it takes until they feel comfortable doing it. It's, it's really cool when they reach a place of success with something like that. For sure, the I would agree. The that it gives somebody when they find they're able to use uh, a cup or a, a tampon and not have the pad anymore. You know, yes. it's kind of fun to see the excitement, like, I have so much freedom. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. And I've run into, like, that problem with a, with a cup, it's a little bit more self-invasive based on mm -hmm. the location that the cup has to get compared to a tampon. So I've ran into that problem of the same idea, like, okay, I think we need to get out a mirror, like check her out. She's a part of you. Mm -hmm. And then in order to use a cup, you're going to need to fully insert your index finger. And so maybe before you even start going down the cup avenue, just learn your anatomy. See, can you insert your index finger as far as what's needed for the Diva Cup? Because that's going to be the, the first step for sure. Um, and just kind of that awareness of their anatomy and not being like, for a lack of a better term, grossed out by their own anatomy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to be familiar with your anatomy. I mean, especially if you want to be partnered or have somebody else enjoy, like what is it that they're down there enjoying? It's part of your body. It's with you from birth till death. So get to know all of you. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. It was created. It does wondrous things, this body of ours, um, however it is. So, yeah. Awesome. And now during your interview process, like with a new client, um, how, like, talk to me about that process and when you know, like, yeah, you're a perfect candidate for this kind of a therapy or, oh, I think we need to go this route first and then come back and see me. Talk to me a little bit about that process. Um, so that's kind of vague. So it depends on what they want to be seen for because it just varies all over the place. You know, I just ask, like, how is it that I can help you? Like, what is it that they're looking for? And when I have somebody that is just like, oh, I have this in my past and that in the past, and I have all these things that I just need to tackle that are really haunting them, then I'll refer them to more of a psychotherapist, somebody that can really delve deep with them in that regard. Um, if they're, you know, if they're going through a rough time and they want to go forward, you know, what does that look like? Then that's something I can take on if it's, really about their sexuality I'm more than happy to take that on um, but I like to get as 
detailed as a sexual history as they can. It's kind of funny the things that people leave out that are really important. I'm sure you know. And then you find out, you know, four or five sessions and you're like, whoa, hold on. I've had us on this track looking at something and, and there's this thing. We need to shift gears and go a different direction. Um, but regardless of all the tools that I have in my tool belt or the years that I've been doing this, um, none of it matters if the patient and I don't connect. And I think that that is probably the most important aspect of any therapy that I can do with somebody. If we can really connect with each other and um, we're in sync, the path that they're on, then, then the results are going to be so much better. It doesn't matter if I have all the answers, if I'm not a good fit for them. And, you know, so. and then what are like your top six patient population that you treat? Top patient population I treat is first would be older virgins. Um, and by older virgins, they would be people that are probably 40, 50, 60 on up. I've had my oldest virgin that I've treated was 84. And by virgins, I might be the first person whose hand they held. So very, very virgin-esque. Um, and then other patients that seem to come to me, most of my clientele is men. Um, probably 80% of my clientele is men. Uh, and then the couples that I see are usually those that are working on, there's a few different things. They're working on creating a better sex life between each other, just the intimacy between each other, or they are exploring some form of non-monogamy. They've been married for a long time and they want to still stay together as a unit, but how do we still have sex lives outside of that? Um, and then uh, people exploring kink or BDSM, another one. And then the trans population. Awesome. So, kind of all over the map. Yeah, no, that's yeah. great. Um, what would you say has been maybe one of your most difficult patients and why? Hmm. I have to think about that. I don't know. I, I think that they all, different ones have different challenges. Um, but the, the most difficult for me to work with personally is when I have somebody that isn't really working. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like it, it doesn't matter what they're there for they could be there for any of the things that i listed or any other thing but if they're really just there because they want to come to therapy and in once a week not really make any changes that's probably the biggest challenge for me i'm not I'm not about that like i want to help you get to your best place and i don't want to just i mean thank you for the paycheck and helping pay my bills that you know you can come sit in a chair and complain but it just doesn't it just doesn't feel right i don't I don't like when not moving along, not because we're stunted from anything, but just because the patient itself just doesn't care to move along, but just kind of looks fine. So that's hard. Awesome. And then um, you do both in person as well as telecommunication. Mm -hmm. Teletherapy. Right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and that's one of the nice things, one of the reasons I went degreed rather than licensed. I went degreed for a couple of reasons so that I 
would work all over. So I, and I do, I go over to China and teach over there, the Chinese Sexological Association over there. Um, I teach adjunct at USC in California. I have clients that I do teletherapy with all over the country. Uh, and then I have clients that come to my home and my home office and I see them here. And then um, how long are your sessions about, like in length and about on average, I know every patient's a little bit different, but on average, how many sessions do you see patients for? What's that time frame like? Well, so it totally depends because I've had people where I've only seen for about six weeks and people that I've seen for a couple of years. Um, and then people that I've had as patients that I, or clients that I've had for many years, just kind of on and off. Um, you know, we, we see each other and then when they find themselves dipping, they're like, oh, I need to talk for, you know, a few days and then life just a while and then they need to come back. Um, my sessions are an hour and a half long. I don't do the 15-minute hour. I find that maybe it's because we're talking about sex, it takes a little bit longer and the things that we're talking about, but I don't know, it takes such a while for somebody to drive to where they're going, get to the office, get out, you know, get out of the car and they're all amped up and they're going to see that and talk about those things and it's so anxiety inducing itself so a little while to come down and then we talk and we can go pretty deep and then come back up from that and they leave in a better place than they arrived that's great to hear yeah feeling rushed in a topic such as sexuality is definitely yeah. not the right area to be in at all well, especially when we're working many times on taking the rush and the goal off the table and trying to help people become more patient and enjoy and savor the moment. And then I want to rush them out the door. It just doesn't make much sense. So, right. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing that you hope our listeners gain from this podcast, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Just don't be afraid to ask for the help that you want. There's no shame in it. You know, we have so many resources available anymore. So different, so many different modalities. If you are working with somebody and it's not working for you, then work somewhere else. If that's not working for you, then find something else. But find something until you get the help that you want and need that works for you to be the best you that you can be. Um, there's just so many ways to go about it. And too often, people will stick with somebody because, well, I don't want to let them down. But remember that whoever you are seeing as your therapist, whether it's physically, mentally, whatever, like you have hired that person to help you. So make sure that you're getting the help that works for you and life is improving. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. If you'd like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Lori for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And if listeners want more information or would like to get in contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Uh, you can email me at drlorybennettcook at gmail.com. Uh, you need me to spell that out or is it? I don't know if you have links. Yeah. Um, or you can reach my office line is 530-228-9119. Just leave a message. Awesome. Yeah. And in the description, there will be um, that website and the email for you. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. And please tune in next month with Dr. Carly Sorensen for our topic on pediatric pelvic health for constipation and urinary incontinence. Thank you.
This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.